Welcome to Engineering Innovations, the official podcast of Purdue University's Elmore Family School of Electrical and Computer Engineering. I'm your host, Kristen Malavenda, the Communications Director for the department. In each episode of Engineering Innovations, I'll sit down with faculty from Purdue ECE to talk about their path to becoming an engineer, the focus of their research, and the future of the field. Our guest today is David Love, the Nick Trobovich Professor of Electrical and Computer Engineering. Thanks so much for joining me today, David. Yeah, thanks for having me. So let's start with what I just mentioned. How did you get on this path to being an electrical and computer engineer? What can you remember at an early age doing activities or thinking things that eventually led you to engineering? Well, I guess my father was a math teacher, so I was always very into math. And then um, probably in high school, I was really obsessed with, you know, all the famous sort of mathematicians and physicists, you know, reading all their biographies. And I thought, you know, I would go and major in math and physics or, or probably just math potentially in college. But then about my senior year of high school, so I grew up in the Dallas area. And Dallas has a long history of engineering, like Texas Instruments, LTV, all the pieces that became Raytheon. And I met this guy who sort of convinced me that, oh, well, if all these people were alive today, they would actually be doing signal processing because they were doing applied math. And that's really what became electrical engineering today. So that really convinced me to do electrical engineering and, and really led me to my research area today for the most part. So what led you towards academia as opposed to industry? Well, I mean, I'm a multi-generation Texan. So like moving outside of the state is like moving to a different country at that time. So I guess I always thought that I would go and work somewhere in, in Texas. I had worked at Texas Instruments. I'd worked there throughout graduate school. And I thought I would just go and work at Texas Instruments. So. I actually, though, you know, I, I was doing well in terms of publications, and then I started thinking, well, you know, I do like writing papers. I do like doing research on my own. Maybe I'll apply for faculty jobs, and that's what I did, and that's how I ended up here. Look at you now. Um, so what is the focus of your research? I know that I've read a lot about you working with, with 5G and beyond. Mm -hmm. um, what would you tell people if they asked you what your research focus is? Yeah, so I guess at a, at a high level, um, people like me and then the other, other folks in the department who do this, we work on sort of the mathematics of how you construct signals that you would transmit over, for the most part, a wireless channel. It could be wired too. Um, and that's, that's sort of the mathematical equations for how you generate the signal, how you modulate the signal, and also the analysis and, and sort of the theory that goes with that. What are the fundamental limits? And... Um I was talking to my son actually earlier today about 5G and thinking to myself, okay, 5G seems pretty good. What, why do you go 6G and beyond? Is it, is there any practical purpose for a layperson or is it more uh, technical? Well, there's a demand that keeps blowing up. So the, there's, there's more and more demand all across the world, across every kind of demographic for, for wireless throughput. You know? So people are using more and more, um, I guess, more and more data rate in some sense. And then they are, they're going through and having demand for other sorts of lower data rate use cases too. So this, of course, leads to stress, right? You cannot create spectrum. Um, it's, a, it's a fundamental resource that right. you have to sort of share throughout the United States and throughout other countries. So you have to use that spectrum more efficiently. So that creates a need to design new waveforms, design new networking schemes that you can use that spectrum better and better. And I guess also in terms of 5G, I think for the most part, people would say that 5G is sort of a disappointment. Oh, 4G, really? 4G is the one that had the huge jump. You know, All of the sort of iPhone, smartphone craze was 4G driven. Um, 5G had a lot of promise and it has a lot of 
you know, uh, bells and whistles compared to 4G. But um, at least in my area, the big one is millimeter wave, which okay. is these very, very high frequency links. And that has really not taken off quite like it is expected to. So, you, you know, you might say that maybe 6G is going to be the one that fixes the, the sort of 5G um, disappointments. Right. Perhaps. And that takes another kind of giant leap, as Purdue would say, towards <laughs> another level of wireless. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully. Okay. Um, how do you work what your research into your classroom teachings and with your students? Do they get a lot of hands-on experience? So a lot of the classes in, in the, um, so I'm in the communications, networking, signal, image processing area of the department. And um, a lot of our classes are, are more equation oriented, you know, sort of uh, solving things, proving things. But there definitely is a, an ever increasing, because of really the evolution of computing, experimental component to that. Um, the class I teach the most actually has a, a lab with an experimental lab using software to find radios. Um, that's really something that, you know, if you look back, I don't know, even even 20 years ago, that was something that was not really necessarily that much around at a price point where you could have it widespread in a university for students to do hands-on experiments. And I know we used to operate in silos, right? And now the big thing is interdisciplinary work and working with other areas. Mm -hmm. How does that work into your research? Who are you working with? Academics, industry, both? Yeah, so Purdue has a long history of working with industry. I would say maybe more than, than many other universities. It's probably in the, the top few. Um, and that has definitely influenced me. I've, I've worked with many companies since coming to Purdue. And really, if you want to have impact, it helps to go and work with companies because we're governed by standards. And, and you know, as a university, you can't really afford or spend the time to try to push things into a standard. So if you want to have impact, it helps to work with universities. Um, now, in, in terms of expanding out beyond industry, we've, we've definitely tried to work with folks in other areas, be it the government, uh, be it um, in, in other areas with applications that have, have typically not, um, I guess, benefited that much from wireless. You know, there's the ECE sort of topics are, are becoming widespread. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter if it's, you know, agriculture, aerospace engineering, transportation. It's having a big effect on all of those. And what is the benefit of interdisciplinary work? Well, I mean, one thing is it allows you to have impact in areas that you really cannot foresee the challenges and you don't really know what's out there. So if, unless you work with someone else who has that sort of skill set to point to this or this and say, hey, this is where we could use this you know, kind of solution or, or this kind of research result, you don't really know ahead of time where you can, you can have impact. Gotcha. And what about if someone followed the path you did educationally but wanted to go into industry, what kinds of jobs would they do? Yeah, so, so most of the students that, you know, are my PhD students, master's students, they go into industry. That's, that's the most common. And, you know, there, there's lots of employers. They go and work on development for, you know, 5G, 6G kind of phones. They attend the standards. They go and do Wi-Fi. There's Wi-Fi standardization, too. So it's sort of the research and development for those. There's also a variety of, of jobs for the government. You know, there's, there's the Raytheons and the Lockheed Martins and the BAEs, jobs like that. Um, there's also jobs at the government directly. You can go work for um, the Air Force. You can work for the Navy. You can work for the Army. There, there's, there's many, many jobs. That, that, I mean, the demand is still quite high. What is different from when you went through undergrad, grad school, PhD? What's different from when you went through that and students today? Well, I would say the, the number one thing is the evolution of computing. You know, that uh, the computer skills of students are definitely much higher. 
um, you know, things that you would think, oh, that's a computer engineering sort of skill set now. Most of the students can do that. So I would say that's the number one change is really the evolution of computing and this advancement in, in computing skills. Um, what excites you about what's, you know, on the forefront of technology for electrical and computer engineering? So, you know, ECE, in my view, is really at the center of everything because if, if you look at the high-impact areas in all the other parts of engineering, they're driven by advances in communication, advances in robotics, you know, advances in computing. So pretty much anything that goes on with, with engineering is exciting. I would say that's an exciting thing for ECE. Now, um, you know, just looking at my, in my own sort of research area, I would say that the AI, ML, boom or hype, however you want to look at it, is exciting, you know, because it's a, it's a little bit of a change. Um, I tend to be more of a naysayer for that, but, uh, it, you know, like it'll be interesting even if there's, it's sort of a big flop in the end. That's mm -hmm. exciting, too. What makes you a naysayer? Uh, well, it's because, you know, there's, there's a lot of success and there's a lot of talk about it, but um, the hurt effect has definitely gone into, you know, it's, it's, it's what's happening right now with, with folks continuing on, going in that direction. Um, and for many of the, the use cases like I'm involved with, um, I don't think the, uh, the uh, benefits have shown up because you maybe train it for one specific kind right. of uh, scenario. And then if that scenario changes a little bit, it sort of catastrophically fails. Gotcha. Now, you know, more research is needed. Maybe that'll be solved, but um, you're not, not convinced. Quite clear. Yeah, yeah, it's not quite clear to me. And what are do you deal much with the ethical implications of using AI? Because um, there's a lot to talk about, especially in academia. There's a lot to talk about it. But how do you feel about that? Yeah, so I would say really in my research area, I mean, bits are bits, and we don't worry about what produced them, so it doesn't tend to come into play that much. Um, but I definitely, you know, think that's a, especially with the image processing kind of uh, realm, that, and that's also in a similar area of the department. There's right. lots of interesting questions that arise because of that. No, the deep, the deep fake videos, right, especially, right, is a exactly. big thing. Um, can you think of a time that you were working on some research and you just hit a wall or a big challenge? How do you work around those when you when you do hit them? Well, I mean, I would say that. Um, Generally, that's what graduate school is, is finding challenges and overcoming them. So, like, uh, it's sort of exciting to have a challenge, right? It means you're going to do something new or maybe it's a challenge no one else has experienced. And that's how you do good work. Um, I would say that there's definitely sort of more um, systemic challenges in the research area, specifically, you know, like, like when I said, this computing AIML, uh, wondering how you compare with those kind of things, how you use those kind of techniques. Um, so... Um, I would say the, the way I overcome that is just, to, you know, you sort of get immersed in what the problem is and get immersed in new techniques and then try to use those. And I think, you know, I've heard more than one person say that you have more failures in engineering than you do successes because this doesn't work, do something else. This doesn't work, do something else. How should students or young people approach those kinds of failures or roadblocks? Oh, yeah. I mean, you definitely should not get uh, disappointed if you fail. You know, there's everyone fails and yeah like you said that most of the time you're failing but you know failing is when you learn things and when you come up with new solutions so like i said i think that's sort of the the exciting time is when you when you hit a roadblock and you fail and then you learn something from failing do you do a lot of i assume you do mentoring of phd students how does mentoring work into your job yeah so i mean um of course we work with undergraduate students teaching classes and, and work with graduate students teaching classes 
But we also interact a lot with graduate students through you know, master's and PhD level research, interact with undergraduate students through undergraduate research. So the mentoring and, and letting them know, you know, here is sort of the things beyond the degree, like here are some things that you can do in industry, here are some things you can do if you go on to graduate school. Um, I mean, that's, that's a big part of the job too, is like convincing people, you know, things that they can't see on their own and maybe from where they grew up and, and you know, their friend network, they don't have that kind of background. So I think it's an important role. You know, I, when, I, when I myself, when I went into graduate school, I certainly had no idea about going to get a master's and a PhD. Mm-hmm. I wasn't really familiar with research and all of the TAs and research assistants and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, I think back to my own sort of career path. Like, I think many American students, they don't know that, you know, they, right. they don't know that ban- kind of opportunity exists. Yeah, and I think that's still true today and yeah. trying to, what we try to do a lot with our communications is to show, um, think of a job, think of a company and electrical engineering and computer engineering plays some role in what that company does. So it's it's more widespread than just, you know, sitting in front of a computer all day, which you probably do anyway, <laughs> but you can do different kinds of, of industry right. and such. Exactly. What um, would you say is... I don't know, special or unique about Purdue ECE compared to maybe other universities that you've experienced? Well, I mean, I guess the number one thing that's unique about Purdue is the size. I mean, it's just so big. You know, I think, uh, um, well, I think now Purdue says they're the largest, even though others proclaim that too. But, um, you know, that, that, that size, the number of faculty, you know, we're definitely what I would call a max Ben department. You want to be good at everything. Mm -hmm. You want to, you want to maximize the minimum capability. And, um, you know, that's a great place to be is when doesn't matter what the research area is, you can find somebody who's an expert in it. I would say the uh, the second thing is is the history. You know, Purdue has this very long history. Oftentimes when I'm teaching class and I show something, there's certain examples I've looked up over the years like, oh, well, this person went to Purdue or, or this person had some sort of Purdue connection. You know, people have had an impact in all different right. realms of engineering. And uh, what about the typical or stereotypical engineering student is a white male. And there's a lot of efforts to get underrepresented minorities, women into the field. Do you think those efforts are being successful? What do you, where, what's the holdup there for getting those groups into engineering? Well, I think from a numbers perspective, which I don't have the numbers in front of me, Purdue has made major strides definitely over the time I've been here. And if you look back over even before that, so, you know, 30, 40 years, so I definitely think there's there's big advances, but there of course there's much more that needs to be done. I think really a lot of it is just specifically for U.S. students in general, they don't necessarily think of engineering as an option as much, especially when you're going back to like grade school or middle school. I think in high school maybe it's more well known right. now, but um, I, I think there's much more that could be done. Just sort of uh, education and also stressing, you know math and science and, and computing that are important and they're exciting and there's all these different things that you can do with them. You know, you you, you don't have to be a professional athlete or a movie star right. or a YouTube influencer, you know, <laughs> you can you can do engineering and, and, and make an impact. And um, I think that there's a lot of people who say that if you're waiting till kids get to high school, it's almost too late. They need to know about math, science, engineering, definitely in middle school and even younger than that to really pique their interest. Um, so aside from working in the lab and researching and teaching and mentoring and all those things you do, I assume maybe you have a little bit of free time. 
what kind of things do you do when you're not in the lab or teaching? Well, I spend a lot of time with my family, with my wife and three kids. So oh, that's wow. all, all kinds of excitement there. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, as I mentioned to you before, I'm, I'm a big fan of, uh, of sports. So yep. specifically like all the Dallas area professional sports team, like the Dallas Cowboys. I'm a perpetually disappointed you know, <laughs> since like 1996. Uh, Texas Rangers, they've done well. Dallas Mavericks. And I also like to watch, you know, the Purdue sports and University of Texas as well. Do you see any future engineers among your kids? <laughs> well, maybe. I mean, I try to talk it up to them, but um, I don't know. You know, like uh, they go to a school that has many, many professors' kids. So right. They they know much more about engineering than I did, and they, uh, yeah, they're like, oh no, that's boring. This is you know. So <laughs> I, I think some of them might do engineering, but I don't know if it'll be electrical or not. I'm right. still pushing for them and hoping. Yeah. Um, what else do you do? You read much? Do you watch movies or TV or? Um. Yeah, I mean, I, I attend to, um, well, I'm, I'm a big sports radio person, yeah. so, like, I, I listen to um, The Ticket in Dallas. I'm a big fan of that. Um, you know, I I, I, um, I would say sp- watching sports on TV is the majority, is but, you know, I definitely I definitely watch movies and things like that, too, but, but um, yeah, sports is the main thing I'm paying for on TV. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Um and if you want to know more about Professor Love's research, you can find more on our website, purdue.edu ECE. And that wraps up this episode of Engineering Innovations. Again, a big thank you to you, David, for sharing your expertise and your passion for engineering. Um, if you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Your feedback really helps us bring you more captivating conversations with faculty from Purdue ECE. And to stay updated on upcoming episodes and to explore more about Purdue ECE, again, you can visit our website at purdue.edu ECE. You can also follow us on Facebook, X, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can check the show notes for more, for more information, and we'll be back in a month with another episode. Thanks, David. Thanks.